Welcome to the Experience Christian Church Message Podcast. We are a church startup based out of Exton, Pennsylvania, committed to giving the community a fresh start with God and with church. Our mission is to help people experience God's love in a practical way. We would love to connect with you. Would you text ECC info to 94000 or go to our website, experiencecc.org for more information and to learn how you can be a part of our community. Enjoy today's message. Well, hello, Experience. It's great to be with you today. I want to start off by thanking Dr. Lee Magnus for introducing our series last week called Simon Says. If you're questioning who Simon is, we're referring to Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. He was not just one of the 12, he was one of the three in Jesus' inner circle. And you can read all about him in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can see the remarkable leader he became throughout the book of Acts. And then you can read his own letters in First and Second Peter. It wouldn't take you very long. You could read through those two books in no more than 30 minutes. But in those letters, you would find a man filled with conviction, writing pastorally to people in need of encouragement. We've been studying 1 Peter on Monday and Tuesday nights, and it's been a wonderful time to walk through each of these letters verse by verse. It's a study taught by Kyle Eidelman, and his reflections have certainly impacted this message. You have access to this material yourself anytime by going to experiencecorg slash rightnowmedia. Sign up for an account there. It's free. Right Now Media is basically the Netflix of Christian Bible studies. You're also welcome to join us this Monday or Tuesday evening as we continue to work through this material together. It's going to be a good time. Well, 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians who are learning to live out their faith in the midst of hardship. These Christians were forced to spread out into various communities due to persecution. Let's read the introduction together. It says, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These Christians weren't in their preferred environment. Life was foreign to them in their resettled locations. Peter wants them to know that they shouldn't let their circumstances negatively impact their faith, but rather they should see opposition as an opportunity to live out their faith and to see these trials as an opportunity to actually enhance their faith. Peter didn't come up with this radical messaging on his own. He was given the same message directly himself from Jesus just before his crucifixion. John 16 records the entire conversation, but let me highlight just verse 33 from John chapter 16. Jesus said, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, who doesn't need to hear that message now, right? Jesus doesn't say, here on earth you might have some trials, maybe some sorrows. He also doesn't say, hey, If you don't listen to me, there's going to be consequences. If you misbehave, you're going to have trials and sorrows. No, Jesus plainly says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is delivering a message of tension. In this hand, he says, on earth, you're going to have trials and sorrows. But on this hand, he promises that we can have joy in this world because he's overcome it. So Peter's delivering that same message to folks that are struggling. In chapter 1, we read Peter addressing his audience as chosen people. Lee did a great job talking about chosen last week. He says, we are chosen by God and afforded the opportunity to choose him back. Peter is addressing the individuals that have chosen Jesus back. He tells them in verse 6, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, 
even though you must endure many trials for a little while. So in verse 1, he says, you are chosen by God. You must endure many trials. Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. There's a tension there, right? Well, it's critical for each of us to understand as we examine the teachings found in Scripture. We don't choose Christianity because we want an easy life. We can find joy in it, but there's still going to be trials and sorrows. We look to Jesus to discover truth, meaning, purpose in life. And neither Jesus nor Paul shy away from telling us that this world is not our home. That's what I love about Paul's qualifier. He says that these many trials last only for a little while. You may have heard it said this way, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Friends, that's good news. Peter says, be truly glad, meaning that we don't have to be miserable about life on this earth just because we have hardships. No, we can have both joy and struggles at the same time. Peter says, you are God's chosen people, but you're also suffering. You may feel overlooked and forgotten, but you have been chosen and are being sustained by God. Peter's words were timely for his audience, and they are timely for us. We don't always know what to do when life is hard. Where do we go with our frustrations? Why is it when we try really hard to do the right thing or make a positive change, we are often welcomed by hardships? We all like to see immediate rewards when we do the right thing. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, I tried attending church, I tried following God, I tried this whole giving thing, but as soon as I started serving or did these things, guess what? My life got worse. Well, Simon says, yeah, you can expect trials and hardships, even when you start doing the right thing, but you can still have joy. He wants his readers to know that on the other side of those hardships, there's going to be great joy. Check out what Simon says about our future. Verse 3, he says, we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. The future, we're promised, because of our relationship with Jesus, is amazing. Look at the terms Paul uses to describe it. He says, our priceless inheritance. There's nothing comparable to its value. It's pure and undefiled. There's no blemish or sin. It's perfect. And it's beyond reach of change and decay. Heaven never breaks down. It does not mold or crumble. It's sustained by God. And from this introduction, we see that we're a chosen people, living in troubled times, but heading for a wonderful eternity. Let me say it again. We're a chosen people, living in troubled times, heading for a wonderful eternity. Peter is saying that these truths are an anchor that keeps us grounded as we navigate our lives in the here and now that Jesus redeems us, Jesus empowers us and sustains us in our troubles, and Jesus secures our eternity with him. So after he lays down this foundation, he explains the call we are to live out in the here and now. It answers the questions, how do we summarize? How are we to live as we wait for Jesus to come back in the midst of our trials? Let's take a look at verses 14 together from chapter 1. He says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. This is the section of Paul's letter that I want to unpack with you today. I want to focus on this passage because it contains a powerful message that answers how we're to live our lives in the here and now. In short, 
were to be holy. Let me be honest with you. When I thought of doing a message series called Simon Says, I was thinking this could be a really fun series. We could use this little old Simon Says as a graphic. Some of you have never seen that, I'm sure. But it was a fun game. We could also stand up and we could play Simon Says. I could say, tap your head, sit down. We could do all that fun stuff, right? But as I read through Peter's book and thought over and over again about this subject, I was struck by the hope offered in this book to Christians that were struggling. They were tired, they were weary, yet they had joy. We just came out of a series called Calm, and that dealt primarily with our anxiety. And as I read through this letter, when I thought about naming a series, Simon Says, and thinking that I'm actually quoting Peter, it forced me to think beyond fun and embrace some of Peter's core teaching. I felt drawn to this topic of holiness. But what does it even mean to be holy? Peter says in verse 15, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. So let's start with a statement, God is holy. In verse 16, Peter quotes a text that appears numerous times in the Bible. It says, be holy because I am holy. Holiness is an attribute of God's character. It's an essential part of his nature. Holiness touches on his majesty, his purity, and his moral perfection. A common definition of holy is being set apart. This is appropriate when we refer to God because he is set apart from all created things. He's the standard of every, that every created thing is based on. As morally pure, his ways are always just and right. He is free from all evil. The Apostle John said it this way, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Zero darkness. God doesn't have a shady side. He's not malicious. And he always does the right thing. Check out the footnote found from my Life Application Bible. It says, Because he is perfectly moral, good, and just, without any corruption, he sets the standard for morality. Unlike the Roman gods, he's not violent, adulterous, or spiteful. Unlike the gods of the pagan cults popular in the first century, he is not bloodthirsty or promiscuous. God rules with mercy and justice and cares personally for each of his followers. You know, God's holiness should comfort us. God ruling with mercy and justice is a wonderful thing. Because God is holy, we don't have to question his actions and doubt his character when life throws us a curveball. Because God is holy, we can trust that he will make all things right, even the hardest trials that we face in this life. When we've been falsely accused or set up, God's holiness knows what is right. A book that has influenced me on the topic of holiness is The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. He quotes, Stephen Sharnock from the 17th century about God's holiness. Look at this quote. It says, It is less injury to him, being God, to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no God, the other a deformed, unlovely, and a detestable God. He that saith God is not holy speaks much worse than he that saith there is no God at all. You know, accepting and acknowledging God's holiness is critical to a a life that pleases and honors God. But seeing God as holy is also critical for us to trust and to love Him. To see God as holy causes us to revere and worship Him. I love how Jerry Bridges calls holiness God's crown. He says, imagine for a moment that God possessed omnipotence, infinite power, omniscience, perfect and complete knowledge, omnipresence, everywhere present, but without perfect holiness. Such a one could no longer be described as God. Holiness is the perfection of all his other attributes. His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. 
It is his holiness more than any other attribute that makes him worthy of our praise. That last line, it is his holiness that makes him worthy of our praise, this is the foundation of our reality. This isn't religious jargon. Because God is holy, his standard is perfection. His perfection cannot tolerate imperfection. You know, when light enters a dark space, darkness is instantly vanished. They can't coexist. You can't shine a light and darkness is still there. When I was studying this chapter and this study, I had a huge revelation in my own journey while preparing for this message. You know, I've been reading the Bible in a year with some folks from our church, and let me tell you, it's been hard to see God's standard of perfection and the consequences for people falling short of it. We recently read through the account of Moses, and Moses was the leader of the Exodus, the man God used to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. He's the one who said, let my people go. Yeah, that guy. He's also the one God gave the Ten Commandments to. He had a special relationship with God, and he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame. You can look it up. There's so much about Moses. Yet, despite all these great things, God forbid him from entering the promised land. We read about this account in Deuteronomy 32. Here God says to Moses, You betrayed me with the Israelites at the waters of Meribah in Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. You failed to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel there. So you will see the land from a distance, but you may not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So what is it that happened at the waters of Meribah? You can read the entire account in Numbers 20, but let me give you a quick summary. Moses was leading the whole community to that place. When they got there, there ended up being a water shortage and the location. So the people, they turned against Moses and Aaron. They were mad and let them have it. They cried out and said things like, why did you bring us out here? We're all going to die. There's nothing here. We wish we would have stayed in Egypt. So Moses and Aaron, they went to seek God out to determine what to do. Here are the specific instructions that God gave them, starting in verse 8. You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. My first reading, you may ask, what happened? But notice how they failed to follow God's specific instructions. They were told to speak to the rock. But rather than speaking to the rock, Moses spoke to the people. Must we bring you water? Then he raised his staff and struck the rock twice. You can read earlier, he used the staff to spike water, but God wanted to do something different this time. This was a lack of faith on their part. What God wanted to do, he was more concerned with not just quenching the people's thirst, he wanted to quench their need for faith in him. What may seem small to us is huge to a holy God. And to be honest, when I first read that, I was like, man, that's harsh. They had been dealing with these rebellious people for four decades. Enough's enough. Of course he lost his cool. Does all Moses' obedience really go down the drain in an instant of disobedience? But here was my insight. 
I wasn't upset because God wasn't justified. I was convicted because I'm way worse than Moses. Rather than appreciate God's holiness, his perfection, you know, despite how much I've grown over the years, when I consider how far beneath God's standard I am, I can become critical of the unfair standard, a.k.a. God, and become irritated by my own lack of perfection. It seems a lot like that initial temptation in the Garden of Eden, you know, to question God's holiness, his standards. God isn't really, or God doesn't. But who am I to question God's moral perfection? Going back to Moses, let me point out that God is not done with Moses. Moses accepts his rebuke. He actually doesn't even question God. He remains faithful to God and continues to be obedient to him and continues to serve him by leading God's people. And you can read about Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34. And I read it differently this time. Although, yes, he didn't get to enter the promised land, what you can read is God showed up, met him at that mountaintop, showed him all the land. And as he was there, he said to him, this is the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants. And after Moses died, if you read it, God actually buried him. I'll be honest, when I read that a few weeks ago, I was a bit ruffled. But as I read through the account with God's holiness in mind, I was moved. I wept, like big tears. That doesn't always happen when I'm reading the Bible. But if you read this and you see the judge as harsh, when we judge the judge, when we evaluate God's decisions, like the same way we could you know, evaluate a parent's decisions or a principal or a teacher or a boss, we look for the selfish angle of leadership, but we can question every decision. But if you read through this account through the eyes of a holy God who is light and in him there is no darkness, it's a beautiful act of grace. What's better than the promised land? Spending time with God on that mountaintop, seeing his promises come true, seeing his faithfulness to a people that continuously rebelled, yet they still made it to the promised land. And then to read that God buried Moses in a place that would remain undisturbed. You know, getting back to our point of hand that God is holy, God's ways are above ours. He's the standard of which all things are measured. And that's what we need. We need God to be just and fair. But as imperfect individuals, we also need God to be merciful and to create a way for us to connect with him. And that's our second point. In Christ, we are holy. Peter says in verse 18, he says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. It's lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. Friends, this is the hope found in Easter. We are made holy, not by trying really hard to please God, by promising to do better. We're made right with God when we accept Jesus' sacrifice. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8-10, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The author of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 10.10, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. 
So we see there that God is holy and we are made holy by believing and accepting Jesus, his perfect sacrifice. Our state of holiness is anchored in the finished work of Christ, out of our position of being made a child of God. And so because we're holy, because of what Jesus did, that's what our response is. We're to live a holy life. We live a holy life not to become holy. We live a holy life because we've been made holy because of Christ. This is a life that reflects God's nature, not our old nature. Not the nature that rebels against God's holy standards, that is self-consumed and always lives to please ourselves. A life centered around our own happiness and pleasures. That's what our old lives are like. Notice what Peter says in verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy, because I am holy. You know, we are adopted as God's children. And we should be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Not in some things we do, but in everything we do. Look at verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. God makes us holy, but we have a choice to live a holy life as his obedient children, or we slip back into our own desires. I love the NLT's use of the word slip. We have a choice to make. Will we choose obedience? Will we strive to honor God by being holy? Or will we go back and live our old ways? This can be a touchy subject. Admittedly, this can come across as legalism. If you're not familiar with the term legalism, Thomas Schreiner, he said it this way, legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. Legalism is a, if I do it better now, now God will love me. If I do enough good things, the scale will tip in my direction and then I'll be accepted by God. If God graves on a curve and I'm better than the other people in the room, ground, God, he'll accept me. That's the reason this is the third point. We are made right with God by accepting Jesus. It's by the empowerment of the Spirit that we can live a life of holiness. Again, we don't attempt to live a holy life to get God's favor. We live a holy life in response to being accepted by God. We live a life of obedience because we are God's children. We've been made God's children we don't live a life of obedience to become his children. Jesus said it this way, If you love me, obey my commandments. You're my friends if you do what I command. Paul said it this way in Romans 6, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. This is beautiful language. New life, freedom from the life that holds us back, the problem is practically living this out. The problem is the parking lot after the service or when someone cuts you off when you go to the grocery store later today. It's Monday when you get to work and that coworker, coworker he insults you again, right? It's when you're tired or you're stressed, someone attacks you, belittles you, or challenges you. That's when holiness is really hard to live out. It's when we face the trials and troubles of life that we then have a choice to make. Are we going to live holy pure lives, or are we going to fall back into the old self and pursue the old comforts that kind of get us through? Just so you know the kind of things Peter's talking about, eliminating. Look at this list from chapter 2, verse 1. He says, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. 
Yep, that would be all evil behavior. All deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Now, do you see why this isn't a fun topic to preach on? We all love the idea of holiness until we're tasked to live it out. When we have hardships. But Peter doesn't let us off the hook. The call in scripture is to be holy as God is holy. Holiness is a process that honors God and must be pursued. Holiness is simply reflecting God's character and not our own. It's living out the greatest commandment to love God and to love others. Look at that person next to you. Say, I promise to love you perfectly. Can you even say that with a straight face? Holy living is the standard. So how do we live with an unattainable standard? Well, we have to live it with truth and grace. Truth allows us to point out when we or others fail short, when we fall short. But grace is what allows us to encourage one another in our pursuit of holiness. It's not a competition. It's an encouragement because we're on the same team. I want to summarize three points shared by Jerry Bridges in the book, Pursuit of Holiness, that I think do a good job of helping us live out this call to be holy in a very practical way. First, we need to focus on God and not ourselves. Our desire to be holy needs to be focused on pleasing God and not getting an A, living our best life. We have to think that our sins, they grieve God because it has a negative effect on our relationship with Him and our relationship with others. If we're just angry because we messed up again or we failed, or ultimately what we're doing is we're dealing with a pride issue and not focused on obedience. Whenever we focus on stopping a behavior rather than being empowered by God's Spirit, we're focused on the wrong source. We don't have what it takes to be holy, but God's Spirit empowers us to live holy. Make sense? The second thing is we rely entirely on God to fix us. That's another issue that we have. You know, some people understand that God's Spirit provides the source to change, but would rather wait on God to make them holy than to partner with God in the process. While it's true that we need God's Spirit to change, Scripture is clear, including the words of Peter, there's an act of denying our flesh, not slipping into old patterns. Our holiness is a partnership with God. Jerry Bridges says it this way, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life, but just as surely... No one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. Again, understanding that there's a partnership involved. And third, we don't take some sins serious enough. You know, many times we mentally categorize sins as unacceptable and some sins as tolerable. In other words, we make sure we're not doing the biggies, murdering, stealing, the ones that could land us in prison. But Peter's list, it doesn't afford categorization. He says, so get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Peter's meddling here into every area of our lives. Peter goes beyond the biggies, the socially acceptable sins. And he goes beyond saying that, meh, there's some things that you can get away with. No. He adds a list that looks at the heart of the matter, not just the outward behaviors. Where do you think he got that from? Well, he did it like Jesus did. No one uh, reads the Sermon on the Mount and says, man, I nailed it. Even if you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard about it. It's when Jesus said things like, yes, murdering is wrong, but if you're angry with someone, you're in subject to judgment. He says, don't commit adultery, but anyone who looks at someone else with lust has committed adultery in their heart. Jesus talked about loving our enemies and the need to do that. 
You can read this list and you can say, see, there it is. No one's perfect. Why should I bother with holiness? God's standards are too tough. No one can be holy. But here's what you must do. You must let God transform your thinking. Lose the I need to be perfect all at once strategy. As you live out your life, moment by moment, thought by thought, you want to invite God into this. Peter's list is a great list. Look at that. He says, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. We know this even in our own hearts. God doesn't want us to be deceitful, to actually put on a false self, to get ahead, to lie to get ahead. No one wants to do that. He doesn't want us to be hypocritical, to be one way at work and another on Sunday, to be like this person with this person group, and then to be this person with another group. That's hypocritical. No, we don't want to do that. He doesn't want us to be jealous when someone else has something that we don't have. He wants us to be thankful for what we do have. We don't want to be jealous when a friend gets a promotion and we're thinking, man, that should have been me. No one wants to be that person. He wants us to be able to celebrate with them. And yes, God cares how we speak to our friends, our spouse, our kids, and even our enemies. You know, when someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back, tear them down. But God wants us to build them up. When our kids or our spouse or our friends get on their nerves, he doesn't want us to cut them down and hurt them. He wants us to build them up. Yes, the standard is perfection. We know it's good. We actually want to live this way. We want our friends to have these qualities. We want to be and to be expressions of these qualities. But here's what we must do. Don't let this standard cause us to give up, to slip into our old ways, to say that's not attainable, so who cares? To call it too much to go after. Now what we need to do is we invite God into every area of our lives and be willing to be challenged and change. I'm going to tell you a little story to show you how this could just be a heart matter in the little everyday moments. Prepare to feel sorry for me. Uh, this example takes place at the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. Last week, my in-laws took our family to Disney. It was, it's a rough life, I know. But here I was at the happiest place on earth, the closest we can get to heaven, right? Sarcasm there. Now, it's a great place, and while I was enjoying it, I find myself irritated by a couple of things. The long waits, the crowds, the expense of every little extra thing that needed to be purchased while you're there. We stayed at a Disney property, and so I purchased a mug for $19.99. You can't use it everywhere. You can only use it at the property, but it would allow me to have free refills for our entire stay. It's a hot or cold cup, so hey, that one could go. You pay for itself pretty quickly, and it was a cool cup. Maybe you've got a mug like that before somewhere. So I made this purchase on that first day. I drank my coffee, went back to the room so I could store it for safekeeping, the next day, I got up, got my coffee cup, rinsed it out, filled it up, drank my cup of coffee. It was wonderful. Then Ian and I headed to the parks. Guess what happened? You probably guessed it. The mug fell out of my backpack. I had it in one of the side pockets. I don't even know when or where it happened. I just know that when I got back to the room that evening, I'm like, where's my mug? My mug's missing. So the next morning, I get up, tell the nice gal, I'm checking out. I'm like, you know what? I lost my mug. I was hoping for a little Disney magic, maybe some grace. I explained to her that I lost it. And she said, oh, that's sad. And that was it. I didn't get a pixie dust solution, a free mug. I got a pinch of sympathy. And I had to pay $3.50 for my coffee that morning. You know, that following morning, I was back and ordered another coffee with some irritation this time. 
You know, I paid for a mug that I didn't get to use the whole trip. I'm going to have a refill. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to call Carrie and say, hey, do you want me to bring you a coffee? She said, sure. And so instead of paying for her coffee, I used my same coffee cup that's temporary, filled it up, and took it there as my third refill. I said, that's going to help pay down that $19.99 I spent for that dumb mug that I lost. When I handed her that coffee, I giggled and said, I'm getting revenge on my lost coffee cup. Well, as the trip continued, I kept getting a daily coffee. and was irritated every time I paid for it, but I forgot about it. But when I was writing this message, I remembered that I stole a coffee. Carrie didn't pay for a mug. I just went and gave it to her. And I felt conviction in that. You might think, oh, that's dumb. Just say you're sorry. I did. I asked God for forgiveness and then used my Disney app to pay for a cup of coffee on Friday, which obviously I didn't pick up. Now, you may think, this is the stupidest illustration I ever heard. What a foolish example. What difference does your $3.50 make when Disney brings in about $20 million every single day? Well, for me, it was a heart issue. And I think the little things do matter. You know, as I was thinking about that, I, I just was realized, like, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have said, that's really cool that you did that to somebody else. And I compromised on that little issue. And those little issues, they create opportunities for bigger sins. Peter says, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. It's a personal journey, not a prescriptive one. I don't want to become the holiness police. But what I do want us to do is I want each of us to take our personal holiness seriously. You know, does it really matter if we get caught for something? If God sees all things? It's a hard issue, right? We should be holy, not as a way to impress God or others, but as a way to please God by living a way that reflects his character. Whenever my kids do something that they know I appreciate, I just enjoy it. I like to see my best qualities lived out in them, like parent, like child. God wants us to be holy because he's holy. And what would happen if we looked at sin as an offense against the holy God rather than this personal defeat? What would happen if we took some responsibility for our sin, recognizes that, yes, we need God to empower us to live a holy life, but we also need to put some effort on our part. It may require a friend, maybe a counselor, maybe a treatment facility. And what would happen if we decided to obey God in every area of life, regardless of how petty or insignificant that issue may seem, to actually invite God in and say, God, is there anything that I did today that offended you? that I need to repent for, that I need to apologize for. You know, I'm convinced that if we take Peter's call to holiness seriously, we're going to find more joy in a life that's filled with troubles and sorrows. That if we look to God's way of holiness, when we face hardship rather than losing our temper or screaming or yelling or doing the things that we'll later regret, holiness is the better path. When we reflect the holiness of God, we reflect God. And that's why he says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. Let's pray together. Father God, what a beautiful, imperfect standard we are tasked with, to be holy because you're holy. And so God, with the notion of holiness, we do cry out and say, God, we need your spirit to make us holy. God, thank you that we can be in a position of holiness because of what Christ did for us. And God, help us want to reflect your holiness because it brings you honor more than it makes us look good. So thank you for this challenge from Peter and empower us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
we're going to take communion now at this time. And communion is the act of remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. That because of our own imperfection, there was a price that had to be paid. And it was paid by the precious blood of Jesus. We read that today in this text. And we remember that sacrifice each week by taking communion together. So you can grab it now. You can grab your piece of bread and your cup. And what these elements remind us of, that when we get in this mindset that I'm not holy, so what's it matter? What's it count? That we're reminded that our sin cost Jesus dearly. He paid for that. And we're made holy because of the sacrifice. And because we are holy, in God's eyes, we need to live a holy life. Not to earn God's love, but as a sense of gratitude. We, as children of God, we live like our Father. So at this time, let's take this bread and let's remember that it represents Jesus' body. And let's take this cup that represents the precious blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And once again, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for that sacrifice. Thank you for your precious blood that covers our sins. Thank you for giving us an example to follow, for calling us to the highest standard. God, thank you for the forgiveness that's offered when we don't meet that standard. And thank you for the power that you've given us through your Holy Spirit that enables us to live better lives. And we love you and we're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if today you'd like to give your life to Jesus, why don't you do that? If you've heard this and you're thinking, man, I'm just not a child of God and I can't do this on my own. Well, you're right. You can't. And if that's you today, I'd like to just lead you in a prayer. If you've never accepted Christ as your leader and your forgiver, just say this prayer in your own heart. God, I need you and I need you to save me. I need to be saved by you. I need you as my Lord and I need you to lead me. I ask for your forgiveness and I confess that doing life on my own way has taken me down the wrong path. I accept you by faith and I trust you for my salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've made that prayer today, you're ready to take the step of being baptized and we'd love to hear from you. You can call me on my cell, 610-235-1205. Reach out to me, Matt, at experiencecc.org. But I'd love to walk with you on your journey. Thanks so much for joining us today. Be holy as God is holy. Thanks for joining us. We hope something you heard today will draw you closer to God and encourage you to know him better. If you found this message podcast helpful, please subscribe, write a review, and consider sharing it with someone else. If there is anything we can do for you, a question we could talk through with you, a prayer we could say on your behalf, or a need you have, please don't hesitate to let us know. We are better together. Please connect with us soon. Take care.